Welcome, everyone. I'm going to introduce our panel here. Uh, on my left right here, we have Tui Vu, and she is the founder and CEO of Tui Vu Consulting. Next to her, we have Eric. Greg. Greg, my bad, sorry. Greg Dykem. He's the COO of Cultivating Wellness. And next to him, we have Robert DeMarco. He is the COO, uh, sorry, CEO of Boulder Botanicals. And on the end there, we have Eric White. He is the head of sales for CBD Distillery. Welcome, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So our first question that we're going to start off with is CBD. In comparison to the supplement industry, which is less regulated than the FDA-approved pharmaceutical industry, what are some of the known contaminants that can cause serious health risks if not properly tested? Who would like to take who, it? Who would like to start? We can each go down and give sure. you one. Okay. Sure. One thing. Okay. So some of the contaminants that should be tested for are obviously residual solvents because dependent upon the extraction process and dependent upon the uh, solvents that are used to extract and refine the product, um, you would have to test for residual solvents. Um, in addition to that, um, mycotoxins, specifically aflatoxins and ochratoxins, should be tested in any sort of microbials. And to add to that, I would add heavy metals. Heavy metals are important um, because hemp in particular has an affinity for taking up heavy metals, and um, they're bad. <laughs> well said. Yes. Yeah. And uh, do you want to do one more? Do you guys want to keep going? I have more. Yeah, I mean, please. The other thing is pesticides. Pesticides are something that, that um, you know, it's an interesting thing in California right now because we're looking at, um, you know, there's, there's, there's the, the regulated marijuana sector here in California has been having, and, and everywhere too, in Canada as well, they've been having issues with pesticides because people have been putting down very, very, very low limits of detection for pesticides for compliance. Um, and so now they're at levels where you know, just like a, a little bit drifting by on the wind can come in and contaminate your crop. And I think it's great that they're testing at that level because it means that the approved products are really, really clean once stuff gets into the dispensaries. But we don't have anything like that with CBD. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important as a brand to test your, to test first the, the, uh, the inputs that are coming into your formulations and then the final product. Right. And so at what level should testing be regulated? Do you think it should be local, city, state, federal? Should it be private? Should it be government run? What are your guys' thoughts on that? Uh, I believe that the testing should be at least at a federal level. There should be mandates done for testing of all, all biomass that comes in, especially with this product because how it absorbs everything from the soils. Yeah, I think until there's federal regulation that can guide city, state, and local, but there needs to be a unifying body at the very top and testing needs to be standardized throughout because every lab, there's no, every lab tests differently, Correct. right? And so you could send the same sample to three different labs, get three different results because they're testing it three different ways. And until that happens, we're sort of in this conundrum as an industry. Yep, completely. So I would like to add on to what you had indicated regarding pesticides and how, um, when it's tested, it's cleaner or it's safer. Um, what I will say is that it's all dependent upon the sample size and how the sampling is done. So an operation that may not necessarily um, do the best or have the best practices may opt to only test product that they know will pass testing. I know that happens. I've seen it happen. 
And so there's that false sense of security at times when the sample size is very small in comparison to the batch that they're testing. Um, with respect to at what level uh, products should be tested, I would say that you know, local or state, definitely local or state, but not at the government level, I would say third-party testing and then verification from government, whether it be from local, state, or federal. Um, there should be some sort of accreditation process. Uh, there should be a requirement for ISO accreditation. There should be proficiency testing for all the laboratories. And even with that, when we talk about proficiency testing, there aren't any standard methodologies with respect to how products are tested and it's very specific to the matrices um, that it's infused in. So if it's a concentrate versus a tincture versus a topical, it's tested very differently. So right now, um, everybody is trying to learn and test different methods and determine which method and which sample prep method is the most efficient to give you the most um, accurate reading. And again, it still falls back on the sample size. So you know, the sample size and the quality of that sample as well. I think another point of that is actually redundant testing. A lot of people, once they bring in their material, they don't continually test their product. Sure. So when we batch store our, our facilities, we constantly test our material over and over again. Every, every time before we ever utilize it for any manufacturing run, that material is retested and made sure that it's safe before sure. it's put into a product. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, private industry should absolutely be, be required to test their own sampling, and then government can come in and verify. So if there's a complaint or if they want to ensure that there's truth in labeling and truth in testing, then uh, samples should be pulled because every single laboratory needs to have um, needs to retain samples after they test it. So if government needs to come in and pull that sample and retest it just to verify, then um, you know, that's just a, a good way of checks and balances for the industry. Absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot of times people will perhaps buy isolate, right? And they'll rely on the CFA they provided and not test mm -hmm. it themselves before they put it into a product. And that is absolutely not a good practice. And it, you know, we, need, we all need to hold ourselves to a high standard. You wouldn't put an ingredient into a product for consumption that you didn't test yourself. Mm -hmm. Sure and relying on someone else's test isn't enough. Sure. And therein lies, you know, talking about um, FISMA, or Food Safety Modernization Act, which is not a requirement for the industry, but I, I feel like that should be the way that we move forward. And for FISMA, you have to have supplier verification. Mm -hmm. So just because a supplier submits a CFA or a certificate of analysis does not mean that you as the manufacturer don't verify with your own independent testing. And then with that being said, you also have to understand that there's going to be, you know, a, a degree of um, variance in the results, full well knowing that there isn't proficiency testing, there isn't standardized methodologies for testing, and that, you know, statistically it could not, and, you know, it could be significant or not significant depending upon the results that you get. So, you know, yes, there, there has to be verification from the manufacturer as well as from the uh, uh, supplier. I, I want to make another point about testing because so far we've been talking about testing, looking for contaminants and looking for problems, but it's also important to test for your cannabinoid levels mm -hmm. so that you really know that if you're saying, you know, you have 250 milligrams on the bottle, you really do have 250 within an acceptable range of error. 
Right, exactly. And that goes into what Eric was saying, you know, people buy isolate and then they use that to, you know, make their products without getting it tested again. So let's talk about false labeling for a minute. Uh, you know, people don't always know what exactly is in their product. So should the FDA ban certain companies from making certain claims on their packaging? I don't know about certain companies. I think it should be the same for all companies, okay, whatever the rule is. Um, you know, it's, it's part of the FDA's mandate when they're regulating food and drugs in this country to state what people can and cannot say on labels. And in the supplement industry, you know, we work with that all the time. And the rules are pretty clear. You know, for certain things, you can say certain things, but in general, you can't make health claims. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so FDA, sorry, <laughs> FDA does have a labeling guidance document that you can look at online. And even though, again, FDA is not regulating the industry, it would behoove you to research what FDA requires for labeling guidelines, and it's very, again, dependent upon the state that you're operating out of. So if you're operating out of Colorado, per se, so I'm from Colorado, Colorado regulates industrial hemp and all products from industrial hemp as a food ingredient. And so we are required to label in accordance with food labeling uh, guidelines. Um, if you're in a state where maybe they regulate it more like a dietary supplement, then you will have different labeling requirements, very similar to food, but not exactly the same. You're going to have a different nutrition facts panel. You have the supplement facts panel versus the nutrition facts panel. Um, with respect to any sort of um, health benefit claims, that is a no-no. It doesn't matter what type of product it is. You cannot have structure function claims because you know it hasn't been proven. It's not a drug that has been uh, approved with uh, with the exception of epidiolex, obviously, for very specific uh, forms and rare forms of epilepsy. Um, and so, you know, any, any sort of mislabeling um, with respect to it cures cancer or it does, you know, whatever it does, you can't make those claims. Um, and then, in addition to mislabeling, there's also something that they call economic fraud. And what that is is um, either labeling it at a higher potency than is actually in the bottle, or labeling it that it has, say, 30 milliliters or 30, 30 milligrams when it really only has 29 or 28. So there's a lot of different ways to be cited for mislabeling or misbranding on your, on your label. And uh, also keep in mind that it's, your label is not just what's on the bottle and not just what's on the box. It's also um, any sort of social media that you have, your website, any sort of print. So any of that would be an extension of your label for your product. So just ensure that you know, your website and your, all of your social media accounts are consistent with what the labeling guidelines require. And all those guidelines can be file, found online. It's Title 21, the CF, you know, CFR, Title 21. You guys can go right in and look at all the guidance that's there and then look at your state and local regulatory rules and then make your adjustments to your labeling as needed. Is that federal? That's a, yeah, it's on the FDA.gov. Yep, CFR. So all of that guidance is actually posted online for you to look at on any given moment. And then from there, it's easy to start defining what you need. And I have to say, I, was, I judged yesterday, I judged the topicals um, for the awards, and I was a little bit dismayed to see um, a lot of the different packaging had clearly not been reviewed for FDA compliance. And it's not that hard, you know, you can do it yourself, you can hire a consultant, um, you can expect to pay a few hundred to a few thousand dollars, and then you will know. Yeah, I mean, I think from a nomenclature perspective, just general agreement in the industry on 
cannabidiol on the label or not? Or is it hemp extract or not? And then from there, if you're actually putting CBD on your product, state how much is in the product. There's a lot of CBD water out there that may or may not have even a milligram of CBD. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of people who are making products that say they have CBD in it, but they don't say how much. Now, an ounce of cream with 20 milligrams of CBD, you know, from a use perspective, the consumer might not even get a milligram per dosage, depending on how much they're using. And so I think it's just stating how much CBD is on the package or in, in that is, you know, to the consumer's benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And in addition to CBD, I would highly recommend that if you're using a full-spectrum oil and it does contain THC, that you inform the consumer that it does contain THC. Now, if you're trying to comply with industrial hemp policies similar to what we have in Colorado, you have to ensure that you maintain that standard of identity of less than 0.3% THC. If it's derived from marijuana and uh, it's in a state that has a legal marijuana program, then ensure that you're complying with whatever the labeling guidelines are there but you need to ensure that the consumer knows that whether or not it's an isolate that you're, in, uh, that you're using or whether it's a full-spectrum product, if it contains any sort of um, federally, uh, <laughs> federally um, what, what, am I, what am I trying to say? Um, a, a Schedule one drug, essentially, because you know, different states have different requirements. Um, if it has THC, you need to state that it has THC and the amount as well. Right, so on our labels, for our THC-free products, they're one color, and for the ones that have the below 0.3%, sure. they're a different color, because we feel it's important for consumers to not mistake, because there are still jobs that you get tested, mm -hmm. and testing variances, just even for, if they're testing for THC, they may just be testing for cannabinoids in general, and you might pop hot just with CBD. Mm -hmm. And then there are other tests where, you know, you could, you know, if you're taking, and there's 2% to 3% THC in all of our full-spectrum products, mm -hmm. and that will build in your system if you're taking it daily. Sure. And a lot of consumers don't understand full-spectrum. When you speak to them, they don't really understand, well, what's the difference between full-spectrum and a, uh, an isolate product? And exactly. you, you really do have to educate the consumer and let them know, hey, this is what it is, and if you do get drug tested at work or for whatever it is that you do, that you may test positive when you're consuming um, these full-spectrum products. Very good. All right. So going off educating the consumer, and as um, Twee said, economic fraud, at what point does mislabeling turn into criminal or civil action? Well, civil action can happen at any time. I am, I'm not a lawyer, though, so I'm not going to actually address this from a legal perspective. I'm going to address this from a perspective of somebody who has to come up with labels that we're putting onto products that go into the marketplace. And um, the criminal side is pretty clear. You know, if you're lying, willfully lying about what's in there, then it's bad, and you're going to get some enforcement action. But the reality is, um, with mislabeling, what happens is typically the FDA, first they go on your website and they see you're making health claims, whatever it is, and they send you a warning letter. And the warning letter is just a letter saying, we've noticed you're making these claims, and it's not allowed, so stop. Um, at that point, you can stop. There's no penalty. You change your labels, change your website, everything. There's no penalty. You're not paying. There's no fine. There's no, you're not, there's, it's just an administrative change, and it's fine. But if you willfully continue, even though you got the warning letter, then you're going to get into trouble. Absolutely. So from the point of view of a label, if you're put, putting something out there, and you know, I don't think it's a good idea to put like, health claims all over your website, but if there are some things where here and there you can push it a little bit, 
and know that you're risking getting a warning letter, knowing that a warning letter doesn't have consequences if you make the changes. Mm -hmm. I just recommend everybody complying. <laughs> yeah, but there's some things it's hard to comply with. It's in particular with CBD, because the rules about CBD are in flux. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these rules we're talking about on the FDA website, those are about um, supplements and health claims and things like that, and those are very, very clear. But meanwhile, we have the federal government saying that CBD is a Schedule One drug. We have different states um, regulating it in different ways. And as a, as a brand that's coming out with a product, you have to figure out what you're putting onto your label. You know, that's where some people are deciding to not put CBD and put hemp oil instead. We did a, a market study a couple of months ago, and we found that 12% of the brands have chosen not to put the word CBD or cannabidiol on their products. Um, and that's just a decision that those brands chose to make. And that or would be considered mislabeling. Yeah, Sorry, excuse me. And that's, you know, um, that's fine if they want to proceed that way. Just understand that that is mislabeling. Yep. That is misbranding. You are not informing the consumer of the components of that in, that product. Mm -hmm. And so you're running that risk of, you know, that civil action or that criminal action because you are negligent and you're making these egregious claims that there does not contain any sort of CBD in the product. Um, in addition to any making any structure function claims, unless you are, say, GW Pharma, and you've conducted the testing and you spent millions, if not billions of dollars getting uh, drug approval from the FDA, you should not be making any sort of health benefit claims. You should not be making any sort of structure function claims because that is uh, associated with dietary supplements and that hasn't been proven. And so, you know, uh, proceed very cautiously with respect to how you want to label the product and just know that you may be an example that uh, is made for the entire industry by the FDA. And so, you know, at my presentation yesterday, what I indicated was FDA or any government agency will exercise discretionary enforcement. And so, do you want to be that company that FDA makes an, an example out of? Do you want to have that warning letter? Do you want everybody, because it's a small industry, mm -hmm. everybody's, you know, everyone's going to know that you're, you've received that warning letter, and are you going to come into compliance? They're giving you an opportunity to correct the wrongs, and so you should proceed that way. Um, you know, attorneys are very different from government. I come from government. You know, I was a previous regulator, so I'm going to tell you exactly the way it is from the regulatory standpoint. If your attorney says, says do something, then, you know, you're going to make them a very, very rich person because they're going to be fighting that battle for you. <laughs> the other thing I think we see the most of, we get a lot of products in-house and we test them. I would probably say 50% of the products that actually come into our facilities aren't even close. They're some of them have actually has no CBD in them. Mm -hmm. Some of them are about 50%. They're not even within a 7% tolerance of what's posted on the label. So a lot of times when you're formulating or making your products, you have somebody making your products, it's critical that you guys are, are looking at your COAs and testing that product outside. So don't just rely on the COA that comes in from your, your co-packer or your manufacturer, or if you're blending it yourself, make sure you're getting third-party redundant testing to show that you're accurate on your dosing and what's going on that label. And you need in your contract with your co-packer. You need to say, you know, if it's not within this range, then, yeah. you know, we have yeah. to deal with that. But again, also understand that statistically, you could still be, you know, accurate with respect to the potency or whatever sort of testing there is, dependent upon what the product is, because the testing methodologies out there that um, that different laboratories are using, you know, it could still be accurate. Um, you know, I'm looking into proficiency testing, 
and you know, dependent upon the matrices. Again, it could be, you can be off by 30% and still be considered proficient. So just keep that in mind when you're re reading the results. What I would recommend is know your supplier, know your co-packer, know your manufacturer. You know, rely on the information, but do your due diligence. You know, meet with them, see if they're very transparent um, in all of their practices, uh, see if they have a collaborative working relationship with regulatory, um, see if they're open and willing to, you know, talk to you about different processes and how they verify in-house as well. So it's all a part of the supplier verification. Yeah, I mean, if I woke up in my fairy tale land, we as a community would come together and be self-policing. I come out of Wall Street where we're self-policing, right? And so if we as a, you know, manufacturing community came together and said, okay, these are the requirements that we fill and here's what we believe needs to be on a label and we all adhere to those, I think you'd get a lot of the bad actors out of the game. And we've all been in this long enough to know there are good actors and bad actors in this space. And there are people who will spin up a website and make claims and put nominal amounts of CBD, if any CBD, into their product and they'll do it until they get told not to, they'll stop and then they'll spin up another website. And you know that is to the consumer's detriment. And I think it's our job to give the consumers the very best product possible and educate the consumers. But we can't, if we're not pleased, we need to at least please ourselves and, and, and go forth and do those things that for the consumer. Agreed. Absolutely. Agreed. Anyone else have any final comments on this before we take uh, questions from the audience? I have a question. Sure. For Tweet. Oh, our first question. <laughs> Do regulators look at um, keyword buys? Like, um, could you, could you, like, you couldn't, the reason people make claims is so that they get the SEO. So people are, are they're going on Google and they're like, I want help with my arthritis pain. Mm. And then your CBD product comes mm -hmm. up. So um, could you buy, you know, phrases like CBD arthritis pain or arthritis pain, phrases that make health claims? Could you buy them? Could you buy the phrases <laughs> like and get the traffic? Yeah, can you get the AdWords uh, and get the traffic for them? You know Is what? that allowed? I would say if it's associated with your website or any of your social media accounts, if they would like to you know, go after you and send you a, a very strongly written warning letter, then yeah, they can, they can definitely go after you. They'd I, probably I would never not, know, though. Uh, not necessarily, no. because they do monitor they do monitor the industry, not to say that they monitor everyone, but they mm -hmm. do monitor the industry, especially, you know, for the egregious yeah. claims. Um, in addition to that, if you have a competitor that wants to take you down, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they just need to have a complaint and they'll look yeah. into it and they'll look at your website and they'll verify. Um, do they look at meta tags when they do that? Look at what, sorry? Meta tags? I, I don't know what that is. It's, it's uh, keywords that are inside the code. You don't see it when you look at the page, but you see it when you look at the code. Yeah, I mean, they look at everything, look right, at everything. right yeah. down to the reviews. That, like, we take off half the reviews on our website. Right, Absolutely. and those are third-party reviews. And those are third-party from other them. people, but the second that review says it treated, it cured, yeah. or whatever, we have to take it down. Uh -huh. and, and we do that, you know, to be responsible good actors. Right. Yeah. It may have treated whatever their pain was, but we're not going to, yeah. we can't use that to promote ourselves or right. to sell. Absolutely, and in addition to third-party testimonials that you do have to monitor, you should be monitoring any links that you provide on your website, because if you're linking uh, a document or linking another website and 
you don't have control over that what that website says, then it can link back to you in addition to that. Right. Um, and then with respect to, you know, the testimonials about it cured this or it cured that, you know, it, it may have helped, but there may have been other things that also helped. Um, we don't want to tell the consumer to stop, you know, their medical, um, whatever drugs or whatever it is that their doctor is recommending in order for them to only use this product. Um, it just, it ha there's not enough studies on it and everybody is different um, with respect to not only the dosage that they're taking, with respect to how they're consuming it, whether they're consuming it orally or inhaling it, because again, you know, your body is gonna react very differently to say inhaling it versus uh, consuming it through your stomach, through your liver, right? So there's, there's a lot of different things that have to be taken into consideration um, with respect to, you know, uh, these testimonials because it's, it's all very different. So well, yes. it goes so far as I can't curate articles from the National Institute of Health and put them on no. my website. Yeah. Or Absolutely research. No. Or research at all. No. I have access to all this research yep. and I've read a lot of it, but I can't post it because it's curated by yeah. me because I'm a commercial you, entity. you really don't yeah. need to post it because consumers, if they're doing their due diligence, which they probably are, especially if they don't know about the product, they're going to Google. They're probably going to find a lot of, you know, articles that are you know, saying all sorts of, you know, crazy claims, but then if they want to look at the medical benefits and if they understand, well, we should probably start looking at, say, the Journal of um, Medicine or whatever it is, looking at reputable sites and sources to verify information, that information is out there. Mm -hmm. And so what we can do as an industry is help promote that, you know, and just, you know, help educate the consumer to say, you know, research it. It's out there. We can't make the claims, but you can definitely research it. Yeah, we just guide people to the National Institute of Health and say sure. from there you can find what you want to find. Or to PubMed. Yeah. PubMed's got 6,500 yeah. clinical pieces of that. You can't have those links on your site. You can't have nope. Project nope. CBD nope. or the Project CBD nope. links. Nope. nope. I can tell people to go to Project CBD. Verbally. I, verbally. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell them to go to the National Institute of Health verbally. But, because you know, it, you can't link it. I can't link it because I'm curating those articles then because I'm using, like, if I'm aggregating those articles, I'm potentially just showing you what I want you to see, okay. right? And because so I'm a commercial it's, enterprise. It's an alternative version of making a medical claim. It, it's an ex that's exactly. actually, so they consider that's exactly it a medical claim. They consider it a medical claim. claim. The, the game is to try to figure out how to send people to that information without sending them directly. So I saw one package I was looking at yesterday when I was judging was that, uh, it was a box and, and it had on the overleaf when you open it, it said, ask, ask your healthcare provider, ask your friends, ask Google. You know, but it didn't say what to ask. I mean, that's just Yeah. And just remember, your website is an extension of your label. label. Just if you remember that and you follow the guidelines that are set forth, then you should be fine. Great. I mean, th right. these things get into interstate commerce laws and fraud and things like that. And so the penalties are steep if you're doing it. FTC, they'll write you a three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar fine in two yeah. seconds. You'll, yeah. You will get fined. Right. So the, the other, the other kind of gorilla in the room is that when the Hemp Act passes as part of the Farm Bill, it's going to rewrite all of the rules about what we need to do to comply. Okay. So right now, any company that is thinking about doing any new labels for anything, I would say wait, just wait a few weeks before sure. you do it because things are going to change. Yep. Um, I'd also like to add, with respect to not only FDA enforcing, FDA may give you a warning letter. Um, but yes, FTC can get involved because, again, that's another federal governmental agency that does regulate. In addition to that, they do have DEA as well. So 
they can partner up and they can they can make sure that you comply if that warning letter doesn't work mm -hmm. if that makes sense and there's still a myriad of state and local laws i mean we manufacture out of colorado but i can't tell somebody in ohio it's legal to sell my product mm -hmm. i'm happy to ship it to them but ohio law is very clear about who can and can't sell cbd in indiana you have to have a qr code on your label or you can't sell that product so you know as a manufacturing community, we have to know sort of what those laws are, um, but we can't, at the end of the day, you know, we can only guide the people who are purchasing our products as far as what they can and can't do. Yeah, Indiana's laws are a little bit different too because it's not just tied to a COA. You have to put in there your lot code, your manufacturing yeah. date, everything Bash. has to be on there. So you really have to do a deep dive into those laws. It's the specific COA from yeah. the lot, yeah. Right, right. If but vape, it's more than just a COA. Yeah. For yeah. vaping products in Indiana, you have to be registered with the state, even if you don't manufacture in that state. And for clarification, interstate commerce is illegal, just so that everybody knows. <laughs> Let's take some time. Um, we got about 15 minutes left, so let's get some questions going. We'll start right here with you. Thank you so much. Uh, fantastic uh, information. Thank you all. Uh, when we talk about active versus inactive ingredients, have you seen folks in the CBD space make active health claims for non-cannabis ingredients like turmeric, ginger, to supplement you know health claims of cannabis products? And what do you think would be you know potential upsides or downsides to that? Those rules are pretty clear. Yeah. There's, there's a list of things that you can make specific claims about. Um, it's like, you know, like oat bran, you can say it like helps with heart health, stuff like that, but it's a specific list. So you go and look at the list on the FDA website about what you can say and then you can do that. But, but you can't go my, outside of that. My product does that, be, but I don't have to specify it does it because the ginger versus the cannabis, for instance. I would say that's misleading. Yeah, I would yep. say you should talk to your compliance consultant. Tread lightly. Exactly. <laughs> you got a question over here? I'm, I'm loud enough. I don't need the microphone. All right. Um, I got two really quick questions. Um, first of all, like you mentioned before about the regulatory on specifically saying CBD. So real quickly, thoughts on using the terms hemp extract, hemp oil, isolate. I mean. I'm in Kansas, so I have to be 0.00. I'm stuck using that. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of other people that opened up shop around us because of our success that they're now claiming they have hemp extract or hemp oil, and we're trying to educate our customers the biggest difference. Um, if, like you mentioned, if it doesn't say what's on the bottle, you have no clue of knowing how many milligrams of CBD is in it. Well, the biggest company in the space doesn't say CBD on their label, yep. yeah. which is very frustrating for those of us who put 500 milligrams on our label or 1,000 milligrams and then put a QR code of the batch test per batch that shows potency-wise we have that. Um, I firmly believe you should say you have CBD in your product and put it on your label. And I think that, as you indicated, once the farm bill passes, assuming yeah. it passes, the world changes Change. anyway. Yeah. But at least on your panel, on the back, on your actives, it should state what your actives are. If you don't want to put it on the front of the label, at least make sure it's on your actives in the back yeah. of the label. And then going back on, because I'm in Kansas, Kansas law states zero THC, there's no ifs, ands, or buts around that. We've run into a lot of people that are claiming the term is zero delta nine THC, so they're selling products that are claimed as zero THC. THCA. Was it, is it THCA they have in there? Uh, I'm guessing, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of these people are so 
without coming across as being the competition saying that they're breaking the rules, I'm trying to throw them under the bus, any recommendations of what I can tell my customers to, set, to kind of point out that what they're doing is technically legal in the state? Yeah, I'd say be a good actor yourself and don't worry about what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah a lot of those, they're all going to kind of get washed out in the next probably 12 months and the Farm Act changes. Yeah, to be honest, you can... I mean, we've had people test our isolate-based tinctures and have them come back with THCA in them. And you're like, that's not possible because I know what we're formulating in. But the testing lab, they don't clean every, like every testing lab is different. And you can get bad tests from the labs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Use redundant laboratories. Yeah. We always use two, two laboratories. Yeah. We do redundant testing. And a lot of times, different formulations, you cannot use the same laboratory. So in nutraceutical or dietary supplements, we have specific labs will do certain types of testing because they're more proficient in testing that material. Mm -hmm. You're going to find that too on this side as well. If you're blending with starches or certain types of formulations, a typical laboratory that doesn't have that, that experience is not going to be able to get you a test result. You're going to get a very broad curve in the test results and they're not going to know how to dial that in. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to find laboratories that can test that material. Sure. And the labs will tell you they can, but often they can't. And as product development, expands you know into effervescence into water miscible products things like that not all labs are created equal and so as, as you mentioned it's important to find at least a few labs and and go and vet those labs don't just send it off and think oh i'm going to get my results go go on site talk to them and make sure that their processes are something that you can put your stamp approval on right and then send Excellent. them the same sample a few different times and see how much variation you get from that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do an ABC. Do, yeah. a, do three lots, give them three separate numbers, mm -hmm. and then send them into the laboratory and see what the variances look yeah. like. Right, and as Twee said, it'll come back with variances. I mean, we can send the same batch of isolate to a lab and come back at 98 and 102. Right. And you're like, huh, okay. But that's within the variance, it's acceptable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, is, that would be acceptable. And I just wanted to respond to your first question with regards to a common name for the ingredient. So until it is federally legal, there probably won't be an accepted common name. Um, bear in mind that hemp oil and hemp extract, CBD isolate, just understand that that is not an approved food additive or ingredient into any sort of food products or even animal food. So for uh, human food or animal food, it is not an approved ingredient, it is considered an adulterant mm -hmm. when added into food or into animal food. Um, the only way that you can work around that is operating in a state that does recognize it as a food ingredient or as whatever it is. So every state makes that determination. So in Colorado, like I said, they recognize it as food and so they regulate it as food. Yeah, I think if you're, if you're going to get into that game, make sure that whoever you're using to co-pack or manufacture is registered, like we're registered as a, uh, the CDPHE as a food manufacturer. Yep. And, but there are a lot of people who are making stuff in their garage, and they are mm. certainly not manufacturing, they're certainly yeah. not following any GMP practices. Yeah. And I highly recommend you visit the facilities. Yeah. 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 yeah if they don't let you come on site, then don't, don't. <laughs> hire them. Good advice. All right, here we go. I don't know. You mentioned, Robert, you mentioned uh, active earlier. And in my industry, I come from health and beauty, right. TC drug facility, registered facility. And active is only something that's a monographed item in a drug package. Right. What I see here everywhere is people making these non compliant claims about pain, mm -hmm. disease, excuse 
excuse me, I think it's all bullshit. It completely. Because it has a mnemonic. Right. So when you say, make sure you lift your list your actives, so under Colorado law, basically in your back panel, so let's, let's just say, let's just say you are using a broad spectrum product. Uh, your broad spectrum product, let's just say, is 10% CBD, 2% CBN, 1% CBG, and I'm just making up the numbers, right? You're going to equate that back to an actual milligram, depending on how you formulate it. On that panel, basically we see cannabidiol, five milligrams, CBG, half no, just, yeah, on the, well, in Colorado, it's a nutrition panel. Yeah. It's, it's different than, because we are actually classified as a food. Yeah, it's, it's very different. Yeah. So in Colorado, we don't have to list it as active ingredients and inactive ingredients because that's more, say, a dietary supplement or a drug, right? right? right. Um, if we're listing it as food, it's just going to fall in line with wherever, um, you know, it, it's listed on the ingredients panel with respect to the predominance in the finished that's product. Right. However... The uh, Colorado does require that you indicate the potency and whether or not it's hemp oil or hemp extract or CBD isolate, you do have to indicate that on the label somewhere. So in effect, it is kind of pulling together, 51. you know, not only the food labeling requirements, but also say um, a drug or a dietary supplement, just again, to inform the consumer. Right. Okay, great. We have time for one more short question. Is there anyone? All right, back to you. Do you have any tips? Um, in Kansas, we're trying a bunch of the CBD and hemp manufacturers or, or sellers. We're, we're trying to create a group to kind of self-police here in Kansas and come up with a list of you know, guidelines of what you should go with. Do you have any tips on creating a localized leasing group on that end? I, I think being open, being transparent, being honest, and realizing that our competitors are our best friends because all they're doing is expanding the knowledge base for CBD. And right now, the universe of people who know, I mean, my 10-year-old knows more about CBD than probably 90% of the country. <laughs> and, and that's a sad statement, but it's true. And I think that the more you can band together, educate, you know, just get together and have a educational seminar on CBD, CBD for seniors, whatever. Not trying to sell them product, but just educate on, on what it can and can't do without making ridiculous claims. I mean, yes, it does help with pain management. No, it's not going to cure your arthritis. So setting realistic expectations for the consumers is very important. But until we can police ourselves and, and not treat each other like we're stealing market share from here or there, but we're together as an industry, um, I, I think that there, we just got to get the bad actors out. In addition to that, I would always high, highly recommend that you try to partner up with the regulatory agencies. I understand that Kansas you know, does not have an industrial hemp program. However, they did, uh, I believe there was a law that was passed that does allow for CBD products to be sold. Um, yeah, they took it off. It was taken off the controlled substances list, and so as soon as I saw that, I contacted the Kansas Department of Ag and said, hey, what's up, Kansas? What's going on? Um, because you guys have no marijuana program, you have no industrial hemp program, and yet you took CBD off of your controlled substances list. So is there something that I don't know about? <laughs> yeah, we, um, uh, in, in Kansas, there was probably about 15 stores that got raided because uh, one attorney general issued a statement, his recommendation, anything that comes from cannabis or hemp can be treated like cannabis or hemp. Sure. So there was a vape shop owner that got busted for drugs. He was also selling CBD. So I think they did that to 
ding him 15 more times on his drug uh, fees and fines and everything. So, but yeah, we had to write the law to pass sure. that. Well, federally, it's still illegal, but you know, Kansas, so we have the federal controlled substances list, and then we have each state having their own controlled substances list. So you know, you'd have to look and see, okay, well, are, are they regulating it from the federal standpoint? So is the DEA getting involved, or is it at the state level? Um, but with respect to policing you know, ourselves in the industry and in different uh, communities, I would highly recommend that you partner up with a regulatory agency and seek guidance from them because when you do that then then you start that communication you open up that communication you invite them in so that they can help educate you with respect to what they expect of you as an industry and you're not just you know going about hoping that you're not being you know non-compliant and that you're educating your consumers as well and you know invite them into these seminars with other consumers but obviously talk to regulatory before you proceed so that you can ensure that you are operating within the confines of the law within that state as well yeah i think it's important to not view regulators as your enemy but your friends and they can be your best friends and help you figure out how to do it right the first time because if you don't have that input and you're just doing it on your own odds are you're probably going to be doing something wrong mm -hmm. CDPAG, and even in their development, they actually utilized 21 CFR. I mean, they actually went to the guidelines, and that's how they helped structure their laws. So, I mean, that's the greatest place to start. Colorado is a really good model of, of progressive. Yeah, and you can definitely look at that. And, you know, me being obviously a previous regulator, I was the health inspector for the city and county of Denver, and I was their lead marijuana investigator. And um, I will tell you, when I was a regulator, there were a lot of things that were hidden for me that I didn't know until after I started working in the industry. Um, and so I really appreciate operators that are willing to be transparent and forthcoming and bringing forward concerns before it becomes a concern. And so when, when, when you uh, actively um, work with regulatory, then they have a different perspective of you and a different relationship will be formed um, versus, you know, them coming in, you know, giving you that smack on the hand because you did something wrong. So it's better to, it's not better to ask for forgiveness. It's better just to be very proactive and ensure that you're uh, complying from the get-go. Well, great. It is 11 o'clock right now, so I just want to thank our panelists for coming today, and I want to thank you guys for being here as well. If you have any other questions, I'm sure they will.